You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, I think it was in uh, the 80s, that's the 1980s rather than the 1880s, the 1980s, that I heard a sermon in London from the Reverend Dick Lucas on Luke chapter 24, and I'm about to repeat that sermon for you. So, As you'll know, if you've studied Luke's Gospel, Luke loves organising things in threes. I suppose it's because he believed in the Trinity that he likes putting stories together uh, with threes. You might remember Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Thank you. And there are three stories in Luke chapter 24. Uh, They come, if we can have the singy, thank you. Verses 1 to 12, 13 to 35, and 33 to 53. And we're going to ask the questions, which disciples were there? Who were the messenger, or who was the messenger? What was the source of their message? And what was their message? Well, uh, which disciples were there? Uh, On the first day of the week... They came to the tomb. Who were they? Well, the answer, of course, was the women who'd come with him from Galilee. That's the end of chapter 23. Observed the tomb and how his body was placed. They returned and prepared spiced perfume, spices and perfumes. They rested on the Sabbath. On the first day of the week, 24-1, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. Uh, please notice that these women are those who'd come with him from Galilee. Uh, They were preparing to honour him in his death. Verse 2, they found the stone... So which disciples were there? The answer is the women. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes... Who were the messengers, two men in dazzling clothes? Could either be an advertisement for a detergent or angels? So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead, asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Then look at the second bit of verse 6. Remember how he spoke to you, when he was still in Galilee. So what these men in dazzling clothes do is remind the women what they heard when they were in Galilee with Jesus. It's Jesus' teaching they're referring to. And then in verse 7, the two men in dazzling clothes remind them of what Jesus has told them. What was their message? It is necessary, verse 7, that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And then the women remembered his words. 
So which disciples were there? The women. Who were the messengers? Two dazzling men. Well, dazzling clothes anyway. Uh, (laughs) They might have been quite dim themselves, but had dazzling clothes at least. What was the source of their message? What Jesus had told the, 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 the disciples in Galilee? And what was the message? Well, their summary of Jesus' message. It's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. A very interesting summary of what Jesus taught. Well, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them and they did not believe the women. Men, may your default position not be, I do not believe you. That, I admit, was not the actually primary purpose of this text, but it's a piece of good, good advice from Uncle Peter, and particularly appropriate on this date in March. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. He sto- when he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths, so he went away amazed at what happened. <laughs> Probably amazed that the women were right. <laughs> he, was, he was a bit of a thicky, I think, Peter. <laughs> Okay, next story, 13 following. Sorry, I'm enjoying myself. I hope you are as well. (laughs) The next day, two of them, well, we don't know know who they were except one's called Cleopas, two of the disciples. Which disciples were they in the second story? They were two on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that's taken place. While they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. So who's the messenger in the second story? The answer is Jesus. Then he asked them a lovely pastoral question. What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? So they're so discouraged they stop walking and look discouraged. We are discouraged, okay. Uh, And then, on the basis that attack is the best form of communication, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus, in pastoral mode, says, Tell me all about it. What things were they? (laughs) So they tell him, not knowing, of course, that it's actually Jesus is in front of them. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, the jokes are original to me. They weren't part of the original sermon, I should tell you. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. When they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of us who were there, some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus graduates from pastoral care one to pastoral care two. How foolish you are! (laughs) And slow. Why are they foolish? because they are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
So who's the messenger? Jesus. What was the source of his message? Beginning with Moses, verse 27, and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What an extraordinary Bible study to have. Jesus telling you all the things about himself from Moses and all the prophets. And by the way, you see the effect of that teaching, don't you, in Acts, when the, uh, the, the sermons are full of what the Old Testament teaches about Jesus. So, what was the source of the message? What, uh, uh, the, the, what the prophets have spoken, that is the Old Testament. He began with Moses and all the prophets. So that's the source of the message. Uh, Jesus actually doesn't refer to his own teaching, does he? He says, no, look, look, this is in the Old Testament. Okay? And what is his summary of the message of Moses and all the prophets? That the Messiah had to suffer these things than enter into his glory. So they came near the village where they were going. He gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him to stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is almost over. He went in to stay with them. As he reclined at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us? When? While he was talking on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. That is, when he was teaching them from Moses and all the prophets, the things about himself, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven of those gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Third story begins at, uh, sorry, that's, uh, well, at verse 33, but we'll pick it up at verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. So which disciples were there? Um, uh, verse 33, the eleven... Uh, that is, the twelve disciples without Judas, and those with them gathered together. So that's lots of people, lots of disciples. Uh, and who was the messenger who appeared in their midst? The answer is Jesus. He said to them, peace be with you, peace be to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Well, they still can't quite believe that it's Jesus risen from the dead. He's present among them, he's shown them his hands and his feet, he's invited them to touch him and see that it's flesh and blood before him, but they still don't believe. So what's the way in which you prove that you're not a ghost? He said, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in their presence. 
Well, my advice is carry a piece of broiled fish around with you at all times. If you think you meet a ghost, shove the fish in their mouth. And if the fish disappears, it's actually a human being, not a ghost at all. If the fish falls to the ground, you know it is a ghost. Pick up the piece of fish, put it in your pocket for next time. Well, people often think, if I had been there all those years ago, years ago, and seen the empty tomb, I would have been convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. Just a pity you're born 2,000 years too late. And people often say to me, if only Jesus would appear in front of me, and speak to me, then I would believe that he was risen from the dead. To which the answer is, a pity you're born 2,000 years too late. And some people did see the empty tomb and didn't believe. And when he appeared before his disciples who knew him, they still weren't convinced. Isn't that extraordinary? So neither the empty tomb nor the presence of Jesus brings about faith. Neither the empty tomb nor the presence of Jesus brings about faith. How does Jesus convince them? Verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what's the source of Jesus' message? It is both his own teaching and the Old Testament. Do you see that? In the first story, the angels refer to Jesus' teaching. In the second story, Jesus refers to the Old Testament. In the third story, they're combined, aren't they? And there's an identity, a coherence between Jesus' words that I spoke to you, verse 44, while I was still with you, and I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then because they're still a bit slow, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. By the way, the same word is used in verse 32, about explaining the scriptures. Weren't, weren't our heart burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and opening the scriptures to us? So he opens the scriptures in verse 32 and opens their minds to understand the scriptures in verse 45. Extraordinary combination, I think. Very moving. And if they still haven't got the message, though they've been told twice, once in the Old Testament, once in Jesus' teaching, this is what is written. That is in the Old Testament. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That's written and that has happened. And verse 47, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed is his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. I'm sending you what my father promised. Stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Now, for whom did Paul, did Luke write the Gospel of Luke? It was for a man called... Thank you. Somebody had to give the answer, and you're right. Give the man a Mars bar or something like that. Okay. Now, Theophilus, like ourselves, wasn't around when Jesus was on earth. We don't know where he was. We don't know who he was. But he wasn't around in Palestine, which is why Luke says in uh, Luke chapter 1, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and the servants of the Lord handed them down to us. That's how Luke got his information. It also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write you an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And Theophilus can have the same certainty as those first disciples if he reads the Old Testament and reads Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Now, I meet many Christians who say, well, I do believe all this about Jesus, but I, I, I feel I've kind of missed out. If only I'd been there at the time, I would have had a stronger faith. Well, the message is very clear. The disciples could have stayed in bed and did a Bible study, do a Bible study from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. They could have saved the journey to the empty tomb, saved a bus fare. Wouldn't that have been a good idea? Stay at home and do a Bible study, and you'll have all the conviction you need that Jesus, that this story is true, the gospel is true, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to, to, to all nations in his name. So I want you to see how carefully Luke has constructed these three stories and the point he's making for Theophilus' benefit and for our benefit as well. We also learn from this story what was the heart of Jesus' teaching and we also learn from this story what is the important message of the Old Testament. That's a, this is a bargain, let me tell you. This is an absolute bargain. Not only are we learning about what Jesus did on the day of resurrection, we're also learning his summary of his teaching, his commitment to the Old Testament, and the coherence between his teaching and the Old Testament teaching. And it can also give us confidence, you see, that uh, not only the first bit of verse 40, 40, the verse 46 has been fulfilled, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, but also that verse 47 will be fulfilled and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And one of the most remarkable facts in human history over the last 2,000 years is the fulfillment of this promise, actually that you can go in most places around the world and find a fellow believer.
So he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshipping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, praising God. We are receiving God's words to his people by his spirit about his son. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he's spoken to us by his son. You might think uh, when the writer of Hebrews says that, that then he will just talk about what God did through his son, but he does in terms of the fulfilment of the Old Testament all the way through. He's using the Old Testament all the way through to describe the Son. So he still values what God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in different times and different ways because what God does in Revelation, next paragraph, God's method of revelation, first he tells his people what he will do, then he does it, and then he reminds them of what it meant. The order is interpretation, event, and then interpretation. Let's take the story of the Exodus. First of all, God tells Moses what he will do. I've heard my cry, the cry of my people. I've come down to rescue them. Then he does rescue them, and then the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament explains the meaning of the rescue of God's people from, uh, from Egypt. So a useful uh, phrase, thinking about the Old Testament and the way in which God spoke at different times and in different ways, is to see that the Old Testament is full of visible signs of the Christ to come. Now, the Old Testament had a certain, a very important message for the people for whom it was written at the time, but in addition to that, the Old Testament contains visible signs of the Christ to come. Let's think of the creation of the world when God said, let there be light. That's a visible sign of the Christ to come because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that God's light has shone into our hearts uh, in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Passover is a visible sign of the Christ to come because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. The temple itself, the tabernacle and the temple are a visible sign of the Christ to come because they're a sign that God has come down to dwell among his people. Do you know that little summary of uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus? Chapter 3, God comes down to rescue. Chapter 20, God, chapter 11, uh, 19, sorry, God comes down to speak. And then in chapter 5, God says, have them make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So here is God coming down on Exodus, coming down to rescue, coming down to speak, and then coming down to live among his people and the tabernacle will be his earthly home. And that God coming down to rescue, coming down to speak, and down to live among people is like a kind of dry run for the, for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God will come down in his son to rescue, come down to speak, and come down to live among his people. So the temple itself is a visible sign of the Christ to come, as Hebrews makes clear. And every Old Testament priest not only does their job as a priest, offering sacrifices and 
teaching the law, each priest is also a visible sign of the Christ to come. And each king in David's line is a visible sign of the Christ to come because we're waiting for great David's greater son because David's throne will last forever. Well, how will that happen? David won't last forever. His successors won't last forever. But Jesus will last forever. And every sacrifice is a visible sign of the Christ to come. You've sinned, you offer a sacrifice, and your sin is atoned. That seems really odd. Why should a dead goat achieve the forgiveness of your sins? The answer is because that dead goat is a visible sign of the Christ to come. And every Old Testament prophet was a visible sign of the Christ to come because God's great promise in Deuteronomy chapter 12 was to raise up a prophet like Moses. And who was the great prophet like Moses? The answer is Jesus himself, prophet, priest, and king. So the Old Testament has its own value uh, and significance for the people, but it has superimposed on it a bigger value That is, it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians 1, every one of God's promises is yes in him, that is, in Christ. Now, I don't know if you know the old song, Standing on the Promises of God. Do you know that song? Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Saviour. Okay, it's a great song, isn't it? And uh, I don't know if you know that in... uh, In Pakistan, to uh, put a Bible on the floor is a very bad thing to do. When I was in Pakistan speaking, I would occasionally put my Bible on the floor. Any Bibles on the floor? Okay. And each time I did it, a kind Christian would come and pick up the Bible and put it in my hand because the Muslims treat their Quran with great respect, so the Christians treat their Bible with great respect. Well, there was a missionary uh, visiting (laughs) Karachi, And he was going to sing the song, Standing on the Promises of God. So he put his Bible on the stage and stood on it. Uh, There was a riot. The police police had to come in and rescue him from the Christians who were going to kill him for dishonouring God's words. Okay, but leaving that little story, which is irrelevant, aside... Standing on the promises of God is a great thing to do. And how do we know that God will fulfill his promises? Answer, Jesus is God's yes to every promise. Do you know the, have you read Pilgrim's Progress? Poor Pilgrim's wandering, <laughs> wandering, getting lost and uh, getting confused and so on. He's on his way to the heavenly Jerusalem, but not sure he's going to get there. And he's captured by giant despair and kept in Doubting Castle, and there he is in the dungeon in Doubting Castle. And then he says, I have a key called promise, which I am persuaded will open every door in Doubting Castle. Isn't that wonderful? What a great way to live. Not controlled by our fears, but controlled by the promises of God. The promise of God that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise that he rules the world for his glory. These are great and precious promises. The promise that his Holy Spirit lives within us, that 
We together are the temple of God's Holy Spirit, 1, 1 Corinthians 3. And we individually are also temples of God's Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. What a wonderful promise. If you want to find the Holy Spirit, join a church. Because a church is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. God is present among us. If you want to find the Holy Spirit, talk to a Christian. Because every believer is a temple of God's Holy Spirit. When you wake up tomorrow morning, if you do, look in the mirror and say, I am a temple of God's Holy Spirit. That's a promise. And it's a promise which finds its yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need the scriptures to know Christ. If we try to know Christ without the scriptures, we'll be deluded. James Smart wrote, uh, you can move that on, thanks. Uh, without the Bible, the remembered Christ becomes the imagined Christ. He says, a Christ shaped by the religiosity and unconscious desires of his worshippers. I'd add to that, shaped by the fears of his worshippers as well. I see more Christians who are limited by their fears uh, in their view of Christ than those who are shaped by religiosity. But we, I, we can restate this about evangelism. Uh, without the Bible, the proclaimed Christ becomes an imagined Christ made in our own image, as we make disciples in our own image. Not a good idea. Or about the encouragement we give to our Christian friends. Without the Bible, the proclaimed Christ, the shared Christ, becomes an imagined Christ made in our own image, as we make them, that is, our friends, in our own image. John Calvin wrote, This then is the true knowledge of Christ, if we receive him as he's offered by the Father, namely clothed with his gospel. And again, we enjoy Christ only as we embrace him, clothed in his own promises. Read the scriptures and meet Christ clothed in his gospel promises. Read the scriptures and meet Christ clothed in his gospel promises. We often read the Bible in a self-centered way. What is God telling me? The first thing God is doing in the Bible is revealing himself and showing us Christ. Don't miss the message. Practical Christians are looking for things to do. But we might miss out on the glory of the scriptures. For we are truly receiving God's words to his people, by his spirit, about his son. Read the scriptures and meet Christ clothed in his gospel promises. Adam, do I have three more minutes to talk? And I have three minutes? Okay. Okay. Now, we've talked about meditating. Uh, and I want to just 
give us time to reflect on that for a moment. Let, let me just show you how I would meditate on a passage from Deuteronomy, if you'd like to turn to Deuteronomy. I haven't prepared this, I'm just going to do it off the cuff, but I put a clean shirt on, so it should be all right. Okay, you'll be familiar with this passage. Uh, reading from Deuteronomy 8.2, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey this 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your hearts, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, this is how I would meditate on that. Okay, I've got time to do some bit of lateral thinking. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I like food. And I thank you that you've made food not only nutritious, but also pleasant to eat. And I especially thank you for chocolate and uh, for fried fish and um, mushrooms and, well, anyway, you know the things I really like. Uh, but I know from this that actually I'm meant to not depend on food alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And I'm so sorry that I often put food ahead of reading the scriptures. And if I'm rushing for time, I miss out on Bible rather than breakfast. But I, I want to praise and thank you that you're so generous that you do provide daily food in the scriptures for me. I thank you for your patience and kindness that even if I don't read the Bible, it's your gift to me. You're, you provided it for me. And I thank you for the richness of the scriptures that they show me They show me who you are and help me worship you. They show me who you are and help me to praise you and thank you. They show me who I am. Uh, thank you that you created me and saved me through the Lord Jesus. Thank you that I'm a temple of your Holy Spirit. And thank you to the scriptures, show me the glory of the scriptures and the glory of this world, which is so beautiful. And thank you that the scriptures uh, teach me about the church to which I belong and your great gospel plan for all the nations. That's so amazing. So I, I want to, you know, lament the fact that I'm not so good at reading the Bible. I have to make myself do it. That seems really poor. And I, lament, and I confess the times I don't read it. Um, but I thank you for this gift, this precious gift. I praise you that you uh, speak to me and speak to all believers, and indeed these words are your words to your world. And so I want to pray for Bible translators particularly today, and thank you for those who are working hard, uh, both uh, the kind of translators from outside and also the people who speak the native language who are working really hard to translate the scriptures. And I Pray that those translated scriptures would be powerful in bringing people to faith in Christ. And I, um, oh, I'm, I think I'll pray too for uh, my church for the coming Sunday. I thank you that, um, not, I don't know who's preaching, but anyway, I pray that they'd receive these words for themselves and then share your living words with us. So thank you so much for the Bible. Help me feed on it every day. So. That's, that's an example of how I'd reflect on those words. You see what I'm doing? I'm making use of them. I'm praising God. I'm thanking God. I'm lamenting. I'm confessing. 
I'm praying, doing some intercessions as well. I'm using them for all those things. Do you see that? Uh, so what I want you to do uh, for just a few minutes is look, to look at Psalm 19. Uh, Adam read this to us the other day. Uh, look at verses, uh, oh, verses 8, 9, and 10, and choose one of those verses, just one of them, and meditate on it. And talk to God about it. Well, I hope you did some meditating. I meditated on the fact that I live in a society which is addicted to sugar. And I am addicted to sugar as well. So I ask God to help me find the scriptures as sweeter than sugar. <laughs> when I'm feeling lilac energy, it's sugar I go for. Perhaps I should go for the Bible.